0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 14 as we get into God's Word together and talk about diversity in the church. According to God's Word, unity in diversity is the evidence of the gospel changing our community. Uh, Paul sums up the biblical idea of diversity in a passage that's not on your outline, but it's 1 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 12, and it says, For as the, one, the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So there we have the diversity, many members, and the unity, one body. So as we've been going through Romans, we've said that Romans chapters 1 through 11 are all about doctrine and theology. That's what Paul has been giving us in those first 11 chapters. And starting in chapter 12, it's about living those truths out in our lives. So in chapter 12, we saw that the nature of love is to serve. This is on your outline. In chapter 13, Paul talks about love being submissive. And now in chapter 14, we learn that love must be patient and tolerant with other people's views. Um, God's word emphasizes the importance of unity. Among his people. I love what David writes in Psalm 133 how good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And then in John chapter 13, uh, Jesus said that, that this love between us, when it's evident, is a powerful witness to the world. He says, A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, the true Lord's prayer in John chapter 17, prayed for his disciples. And you know that Jesus prayed for you as well? He prays for you in John 17. He says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for the disciples, but I pray for all those who will believe in me through their message. That's you. That's me. We have believed in Jesus Through the message of the, the apostles, that's where it started. And then here's this prayer, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Wow, praise for you and me right there. One important thing to underline here is, is in verse 17 of John 17. Uh, it's also on your outline where it says, Sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. And so the ones who are being sanctified through the word will get to this unity. I like what A.W. Tozer writes in his book, The Pursuit of God. If you've never read that book, it's a classic uh, within the Christian life and and and. Christian community. You should read that book if you haven't by A.W. Tozer. He writes this, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive to closer fellowship. For Paul, and this is on your outline, Christian unity and diversity are both essential. Diversity is important because we all have different gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. So we see there the unity and the diversity. Each church member plays a significant part in the life of the church. The unity is expressed through the variety of gifts that God gives to each one, just as he wants to give them. You know, in Rome, um, the gospel had brought together some very different people into the church. Uh, On the one hand, you had Christians who have come out of of Judaism, Roman Judaism. Uh, They believed that observing every aspect of the law was the best way for them to live out God's grace. Uh, The problem is they were thinking everybody else should do the same thing. And then, on the other hand, you had the Roman Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ. And all of them were in the same church. Paul gave them labels. He called the law-observing Jewish Christians weak. Because they felt obligated to obey rules, especially what they ate and how they worshipped. When they worshipped. And he called the Gentile Christians strong because they understood that spiritual liberty in Christ, uh, they understood that and they weren't bound to enslaved, if you will, to a diet or to particular holy days. You can imagine the tension that was going on between those two groups. The weaker Christians were condemning the stronger ones because they weren't obeying the laws that they felt were essential while the stronger ones were looking down at the weaker ones, thinking they were the superior ones. And the easy way would have just been for Paul to start two churches. We have First Baptist Church over here, First Church of Rome, and then we have a Second Baptist Church of Rome over here. That would have been the easy way to do it. That's not what Paul did. Uh, In order to keep the unity and the diversity of the church Paul did what was more difficult, more challenging, but much better, much more biblical, and that is keep them all together. You know, I was trying to think how that works, how the the unity of the body and the diversity actually works, and imagine all of these unique rocks of different color and different textures and different shapes all put into a, a rock tumbler. And some of them are smooth and some are round and some are jagged and sharp. But as the tumbler turns and the rocks start to rub against each other over time, something beautiful takes place. And that's what takes place in the church. It's as if the rocks begin to influence each other. The sharp edges become smoother as they collide and cooperate, if you will, and they all become more beautiful. It's almost like the rocks reach this state of unity because they've embraced the diversity and they've complemented each other's strengths and weaknesses. And remember in this situation that Paul himself was a rabbi who, like all rabbis, gave thanks every day that he was not a Gentile, that he was not a slave, and that he was not a woman. That's what all rabbis prayed. But it was Paul who wrote in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, one pastor in India, uh, appropriately enough since we prayed for India, wrote about unity and diversity in that country. And he said, if anything, it complicates life. He wrote this, most of what happens in Christian churches in India can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in the area where I live in India, only Christians strive, however imperfectly, to mix men and women of different castes and races and social groups. That is the real miracle. You know, I believe that God has given a great gift to us here at Claremont Emanuel, uh, such a variety, such a great variety of people, of young and old and, and different social strata and economic differences between us. Uh, most of us would probably not choose to hang out with each other if we met each other on the street. But God has brought us together as a church family Right here. And that is so exciting to me. And it's, it's neat to see this lived out. And I, and I hope this message is an encouragement to you because I think this is where we're at. This is what we're doing. Of course, there can be some fine-tuning along the way, but, but God has blessed us in a tremendous way. Um, so how does it happen? T- to begin with, I'd say it, it happens, this unity happens as we flesh out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Like love and joy and peace, patience, being patient with each other. Kindness. And and the list goes on. Let me just stop with kindness for a second. You know, I I read recently about a man whose name is Tim Winton. He's a a well-known Australian author, uh, novelist, but he's also an outspoken Christian. His father was a motorcycle policeman, and when he was five years old, his father was hit by a drunk driver and was in a coma for months in the hospital. Uh, After having been in the hospital for a long time, he finally was able to come home, but his wife, uh, Tim's mom, just had a really hard time uh, taking care of his daily needs, bathing him and, and feeding everything else. It was just hard, such a burden on the family. And one day, a man who had heard of this family's challenges, a big guy from a nearby church, came and knocked on the door. He'd never met this family before. But he said, hey, I've, I've heard that, that you might need some help. What can I do? And for the next months, this man came over every day, gave the, Tim's dad a bath, helped feed him and, and do help with his daily needs. And Tim Winton wrote this. He said, this man just showed up. And it really touched me, the the kindness that he showed, and that he would come and help my family. And in the end, he writes, this one act of sacrificial kindness that extended over many weeks was the doorway into the Christian faith for the entire Winton family. That one act of kindness. Think of all the opportunities we have even today while we're here to speak kindly to one another, to to, to show attention to one another, to to be kind. And, And that's one of the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't feel you're there, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have the power to do that in your life. You can draw on the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to be a kind person if you're not or to be kinder. To reach out and show that kind of kindness so what do we need to maintain our unity the same thing that the romans needed so it's been a long introduction but let's read our passage together romans 14 beginning at verse 1 Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters one person's faith allows them to eat anything but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of you will give an account of ourselves to God. This is God's word. So what do we need to maintain our unity? Number one, based on God's acceptance of us, genuine acceptance of one another is the only option. It's the only option. Paul begins very clearly in verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. You might want to underline that, those two words, disputable matters. That's really what we're talking about here in this passage. Disputable matters. So the one whose faith is weak isn't weak in basic beliefs. Uh, that, but, but where they're struggling is the assurance that, that they're, what they're doing is the right thing to do, like eating meat or not eating meat. That's an example of a disputable matter. Uh, I was trying to think of examples of disputable matters that we might have, and I came up with a list of about 50, and that was kind of too long to go over this morning. So you need to think, what are disputable matters for you? We're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but what are some things that you might hang on to and you think others should, but the scripture really isn't clear on that issue? Uh, So, Acceptance doesn't mean that we have to agree with everyone. Uh, We can respectfully disagree about ideas and opinions without rejecting the person. We ought to be able to have discussions. And and this is important. Acceptance doesn't mean that truth is set aside or to be ignored. Sometimes love in the body of Christ, when someone knows you love them, uh, you can say hard things to them. Sometimes hard things need to be said to us. And the acceptance is to be mutual on on the part of the strong and on the weak. So verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. If we set up restrictions that are based on our personal prejudices and convictions, we are going beyond what the Bible says. Maybe Augustine said it best. I love this quote. You've got it on your outline. In essentials unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So, in other words, we have a unity on those things that are core of our faith. We believe, for example, uh, that Jesus Christ is God, the Son. We all agree on that. That's an essential. Non-essentials are secondary items Uh, where there is liberty to hold differing opinions, differing viewpoints. And then finally, whether it's an essential or a non-essential issue, charity means showing kindness. It means loving the people that are in front of us, understanding each other, seeking to understand each other, living out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We want to include everyone. We want everyone to be, a, everyone is a part of the body. We want them to feel a part of the body. We want them to be actively involved in the body. I, I heard about an elementary school that put on a, a musical. And uh, written in the elementary school program were these words. This musical was originally written for 15 actors, but it has been adapted to accommodate our cast of 206. This was a no cut audition. Everybody made it. All of these kids had a role to play. All of them were acting a part or singing something or saying something. Everyone had something to do that was important. And we're a family. And and to get the job done of fulfilling the great commission, at the same time we wanna get the job done of making disciples. Part of being a disciple is being involved in ministry. And so that's part of our goal here is that everyone find a place where they can plug in according to their gifts and, be, and use their gifts for the glory of God in the, in the context of our body. But also, uh, we, we, we want to give the opportunity to fill in and serve where maybe you're not gifted, but there's just a need. And so we all are willing to do that. We're filling in a need where, where, that, where that happens. You know, Jesus actually gave us those five priorities. And if you look on the the cover of your worship folder, you see those five priorities from the great commandment and the great commission. Uh, And each one of them are there for us to live those out. So we are all about reaching the world for Christ and fulfilling the great commission. But we're also about making disciples. So whether we're weak or strong, this is on your outline, whether we're weak or strong believers, there is to be mutual and wholehearted acceptance of one another we understand that not everyone is in the same place of spiritual maturity uh, we, we leave room we have to leave room for the Holy Spirit to teach for the Holy Spirit to convict uh, and we, we we have a role to encourage people we have a role to instruct people uh, but we trust God will bring the growth so our first question should always be when we're faced with one of those gray area issues, a non-essential. Uh, first of all, does the Bible say anything about this? If it does, we need to obey what God's word says. But take any of the gray area issues that maybe came to your mind that you thought of for you, and, and this is on your outline, if you're not sure if something uh, that you're doing is sinful or not, here are some questions that you can ask yourself, and you should, there should be maybe a regular time of of self reflection. Is the Holy Spirit convicting me of what I'm doing? That what I'm doing is wrong. Is my action causing someone in my Christian family to stumble? Is this action hurting or helping my faith grow? Is this action somehow controlling me? Uh, is this action causing me to not follow someone whom God is? put in authority over me? Am I judging others who don't agree with me in this gray area? That's some places to start. There are other things the Bible says about gray areas, principles, and dealing with them, but this is at least a place to begin. I encourage you to do that. Another thing that we can say here is if the Lord convicts you that something you're doing is wrong, then you'd better not do it, even if all the other Christians around you are doing it you need to follow the Lord. So whenever you take a stand on issues, remember, and this is on your outline, the call to accept one another is a command of God. Divorce is not an option in the Christian body, in the Christian family. So verse three, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Remember, we're not talking about issues that the Bible's clear on. We mentioned the deity of Christ, but also the the nature of sin, uh, the salvation by faith. There are so many other issues that the Bible is very clear on. But Matthew 18 does say if a brother is sinning, we're to to confront them. On some level, uh, we are to judge. I mean, we're, we're told not to judge, but in John chapter 7, Jesus says, judge with righteousness, And so there are calls we have when we see sin in someone's life, we confront the sin. That's what it says in Matthew 18. So accepting one another is not optional. And then in verses four through six, that gives us the second element, if you will, of understanding for why we're to live in unity with each other. And that is that God sustains us. God sustains us. Thankfully, our success in the Christian life doesn't depend on the opinion of other Christians. God is the master he will judge, and we should live to please the Lord. We should live to please him alone. Verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. And here the word servant suggests that Christians ought to be busy working for the Lord together and serving him. And then we won't if we're doing that we're not going to have all the we won't have time to sit around and condemn each other. That's not the goal. The goal is to serve the Lord. There are more important things to do for the kingdom of God than investigating the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're side by side with them and we're serving the Lord, reaching the world for Christ. And then verses 5 and 6. One person considers one day more sacred Then another, another considers every day alike. So the argument over days was most likely about observing the Sabbath. The Jewish conscience felt like they had to observe it very strictly, very religiously, if you will. Uh, No pun intended. On the other hand, Roman Gentile Christians believed that every day was sacred. And every day should should be equally devoted to living for God and serving him. So Paul, what Paul says at the end of the, the last part of verse 5 is he says, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So what does that mean? Well, make sure your opinion is as informed and reasonable as it can be. Uh, opinions can be wrong. We can differ on matters of opinion. And so we need to think through things the best we can. Maybe we read a book on the topic. Maybe we read a book on each side of the issue on the topic. Maybe we talk to someone who is an expert in the area, uh, or maybe experts on both sides. But at least we have an openness. We we approach this, and especially discussions with other believers, not with closed fists, but with open hands. We're open to learn. Um, And when you're in a conversation with someone that you disagree with, Man, ask a lot of questions. Come to a, a level of understanding with them of why they hold the position they hold and, and uh, how they came to that conclusion. So God has given, this is on your outline, God has given each of us a mind to think and, a, and reason with. A mind that is hopefully controlled by the Holy Spirit under the authority of God's word and we should act accordingly. The evidence that both the strong and the weak have hearts that are right toward God in this passage is that they're both giving thanks. Look at verse six. Whoever regards one day as as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord for they give thanks to God and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So the question isn't that the weak and the strong aren't loving Jesus and serving him. They are. But these are matters of opinion. Both the strong and the weak are fully intent on serving Jesus. So I I heard about this international Christian convocation that was happening in the world, and there were people from many different countries. And um, they would break out by country into smaller delegations, And they had in one giant meeting room uh, a a, a group from China, another delegation from Taiwan, and another delegation from Hong Kong. Uh, You can imagine that politically that could have been pretty explosive. But one of the Chinese delegation asked their leader if they could invite the Taiwanese group to join them. And they, they did. And it was such a sweet time together. In fact, one Chinese leader said, in Christ, we are all one family and political differences, political boundaries should not separate us. In Christ, we have to be known for making the first steps to connect. And then later on, the following nights of this, uh, this big convention that they had, they invited groups from Korea and from Japan to join them and a group from Hong Kong joined in as well. And one young woman from Taiwan said this was such a a moving time and I don't see this kind of thing happening in any other context except among Christians. And that's where it should be. And, and, you know, politics, maybe that's one of the areas that you thought of where maybe some scripture isn't clear. But, man, we've got to be open. We've got to start the conversation. And then the final thing that we need to understand to help us in unity with each other in our diversity is the acceptance of the Lordship of Christ. That's number three. The term Lord is used eight times in these 12 verses, and three of them are right here. Look at verse seven. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And so the next thing you have on your outline is this, that the Lordship of Christ is the foundational truth for the unity of the church in the midst of diversity of opinion. We all bow to the Lordship of Christ. You know, there's a great example of this in John chapter 21. Uh, Jesus has restored Peter. Uh, to a place as an apostle, and once again, Jesus tells Peter, follow me. And Peter begins to follow Christ, and then he looks behind him, and he sees John behind him. And, uh, and then Peter asks Jesus, and he says, Lord, what about John? What, 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 what's he supposed to do? And Jesus replied, what is that to you? You follow me. You know, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, maybe you remember a time when Lucy asks Aslan, the Christ figure, why why he harmed one of her friends. And Aslan says to Lucy, it's not for you to know anyone else's story. You only get to know your own. We don't get to know the story of anyone else here. We only really know our story. And so... You know, what Jesus was saying to Peter, in other words, is Peter, you have made me Lord of your life. You let me worry about John. And so whenever you're tempted to condemn another believer for something that is one of those uh, non-essential issues, what you need to hear Jesus saying is, what is that to you? You follow me. That's his word to us. So verse 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. Paul uses the term brother to emphasize again the unity of the strong and the weak. We're strong, we're weak, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And by using that term, he's saying, you're both God's children. Stop trying to be God to each other. I know we'd all like to play junior Holy Spirit in the lives of our friends to get them to do what we want them to do. But God says, you let me do that. Uh, Why? Because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul writes the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, "...for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, both good and bad." And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, "...his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward." If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. What an encouragement not to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ in the things that the Bible doesn't speak about clearly in those non-essential areas. And so verse 12, again, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God and God's judgment is perfect every single time. Our reward will be exactly what we deserve. Not one iota less, not one thing more. It will be the reward of every believer. So, question on the outline. How are we to prepare for the judgment seat of Christ? By making Jesus Lord and faithfully obeying his word. So, again, on your outline, to help other believers be transformed. How do we do that? Once a believer, uh, we're entered into a discussion with a believer on an area of disagreement, what do we say? What do we do? Well, the focus should be, and this is on your outline, on grace, not law. It should be on the grace of God, like the stronger ones that Paul's talking to. We want our church to be a family where everyone has the freedom to become all that God wants them to be, according to his plan and his timetable. You know, something happens. Maybe something bad happens and you go, Lord, I don't understand this. How could this happen? But God's timetable is not ours. Things almost never happen in the way we want them to happen and the timing we have. In order to make that happen, we have to focus on grace and communicating the grace that God has poured out on us onto the lives of other people. We've already talked about acceptance. That's super important. That was point number one. But what else is needed? Well, we have to keep, it's on your outline, keep pointing people to Jesus. We have to keep pointing people to Jesus. That means that we release them to be who God wants them to be. I know it's tempting, but but we we can't play God in their lives. We, We trust that God will work in this person's life uh, and we speak to them in love the same way, at the same time, we do everything we can to point them to Jesus. You know, our first year studying French, uh, first year in France, we were studying French, we were in Albertville, where the, where, where the Winter Olympics were in 1992. And um, I was reading at the same time um, an author named Paul ternier And he's really the father of I, I think is the father of Christian counseling. It was a medical doctor who believed that everyone who came to him for a medical problem had a spiritual problem somewhere behind it. And so uh, he lived in Geneva, not too far from Albertville in France. And so I wrote to him and I asked him, I said, man, I'd love the opportunity to, to have a, a time to meet with you sometime. And he invited me to his home. And um, I took a friend of mine, a friend, Phil, uh, who was a missionary with us and who was planning on going and taking over a clinic in Zaire at the time, now it's Congo. And um, the two of us went over and Dr. Turnier couldn't have been more kind and, and, um, and welcoming and very hospitable. And we had a great time conversing with him. And uh, my friend Phil said, he was real excited to ask him this question. He said, Dr. Tournier, what advice would you give me as uh, taking over a clinic and as a a missionary doctor? And uh, Dr. Tournier just kind of thought for a bit and and shook his head. He said, you know, just ask Jesus. Well, this was kind of frustrating for my friend. He wanted more than that. And so... It was in French. The whole conversation was in French. And so we, uh, Phil said, I, I'm going to try again here. So we tried again and kind of worded it differently and said, what advice would you give for me as a medical doctor uh, going into uh, Zaire? And Dr. Tournier thought for a little bit and finally just said, just, just ask Jesus. And my friend was like, oh my, I, this is, I'm going to try it a different way. And he asked it again. And the same response from Dr. Tournier, just ask Jesus. But the point, and and Phil kind of came away frustrated with that, but ended up writing an article in a Christian medical journal about how, in essence, that was the best thing that Dr. Tournier could have ever said to him because it pointed him right back to Jesus. And that's what we need to do with each other is keep pointing each other back to Jesus, back to the word, back to prayer, back to our relationship with him. Um, and finally, we, this is on your outline, we have to remember that we don't have what God does to pass judgments on others. We barely have enough information to make wise decisions for ourselves, much less have all the facts to judge or direct other people and interpret their motives correctly. There's no way that we can be completely objective, we're biased. We're finite, we cannot see the big picture like God sees the big picture. And when God directs, he's considering every possible factor in the universe. We don't have that at our fingertips, we wouldn't have that after a thousand years. When someone fails, God is always there to offer them hope and a way of redemption. And the Holy Spirit convicts, but then the Holy Spirit also wants to transform. And we don't just want to go around convicting people. We want true heart transformation. And that's what Paul's acknowledging right here. And so we can't do the work of transformation, but the Holy Spirit can. John Calvin understood that one of the devil's main strategies is disunity and division. He wrote a a close coworker uh, this encouragement. This is a bit of a paraphrase, but here's what he said. Every Christian should do everything in their power to fight for unity when fellowship is broken. They ought to have such a passion and respect for the ministries of the church that they are willing to accept each other by quickly asking forgiveness, by freely giving forgiveness that leads to oneness in Christ's body. Man, Calvin saw that. Uh, What an important insight for us to fight for. I like the way Vance Havner, the the pastor, put it. He said, snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them get together, they can stop traffic. (laughs) If we're praying and ministering together, nothing can stop the fellowship and the unity of the Lord's church. And so may God give us the grace to extend his grace within the body of Christ. Paul said in Galatians, do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. But then we're to let that flow out to other people around us as well who aren't part of the body to bring them into the body. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, every time we gather, it's such a great reminder that you've called us to love one another and to go back into the world and to love them for you. We want your love to to guide us in everything we do and be so evident to those who aren't yet a part of your forever family that it draws them to you. And so, Father, give us your strength to love each other unconditionally, to extend your grace and your forgiveness freely to others. May your love bind us together so that we will be unified in essentials. And give us grace in the non-essential areas and that we might do it all with love and all the fruit of the Spirit. And Father, if somehow you've spoken to someone today about entering a relationship with you that they never have, I pray that you would draw them to yourself right now that they would respond in faith. And we lift this time up to you in the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So from Romans 15, uh, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.